everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Reading During Recess. I'm Terry LaRue, and I'm a first grade teacher. And I'm Sarah Hansen, and I'm a writer. And this is our 18th episode, and we're going to be returning to a series of unfortunate events, and we'll be talking about books eight and nine. Yes. If you haven't already, we recommend you go back and listen to episodes 12, 13, and 15, because those episodes we talk about books one through seven. But if you don't care, that's, you know, your call. Do whatever you want. Yeah. We can't stop you. Remember when we were kids and everyone would always say, it's a free country. Oh, yeah. (laughs) The original lie. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to be talking about book eight today, The Hostile Hospital, the eighth book in the children's series, A Series of Unfortunate Events, which is written by Lemony Snicket. That is his pen name. His real name is Daniel Handler. And this particular book was published in September 2001. And today we're also going to be talking about the ninth book, which is The Carnivorous Carnival. And it was published in October 2002. Also, for a large part of my life, I definitely thought the word carnivorous was pronounced carnivorous. And that's... And that's so fair, you know? And I validate that. I do. Thank you, Terry. (laughs) So in my head, this is the carnivorous carnival. (laughs) So we're not going to go into and about the author in this episode because we already did that in episode 12. So if you're interested in learning more about Lemony Snicket slash Daniel Handler, you can find that info in our earlier episode. Which you should re-listen to anyway if you already have listened to it because it's great fun. <laughs> so the hostile hospital opens up with the Baudelaire's fleeing the angry mob from the village of foul devotees. You might remember from the previous book that they had been accused of murdering Count Olaf. And since then, a daily punctilio, is that how it's pronounced? I think so, yeah. Article, that is the, I guess, um, area's newspaper, has published an article about Violet, Klaus, and Sunny calling them... Veronica, Clyde, and Susie, or Sally? Yeah, yeah. And accusing them of murdering Count Omar. So they are, at this point, fugitives. So they stop into a store called the Last Chance General Store, where they try and send a telegram to Mr. Poe. But now that the Baudelaire's are apparently murderers, they're on the run, and they have to flee the store pursued by the shopkeeper, which is really sad because they have a very pleasant encounter with him at first and he's really nice to them and he makes them like cranberry muffins and mm-hmm. lets them send a telegram for free but they really can't have anything <laughs> like because as soon as the guy sees the paper he's just he's like all right here i come so the three siblings have to hightail it out of there and are fortunately for them picked up by vfd a van <laughs> full of the volunteers fighting disease. And these people are a group of cheerful, useless singing weirdos. <laughs> and their thing is that they volunteer at the local Heimlich hospital by singing to guests and handing out heart-shaped balloons. And fortunately for the siblings, VFD aren't familiar. And again, VFD, the volunteers fighting disease, are not familiar with their crimes because they have never read the Daily Punctilio because they don't read that newspaper or any newspaper as they feel that it is depressing and their policy is that no news is good news which leads to i think like one of my favorite little lemony snicket spiels that i think we can save for favorite excerpts and along with that a truly wonderful song that is um sung in the van (laughs) i mean should we give them a verse from yeah i think we should song 
Okay, well, it starts off, we are volunteers fighting disease and we're cheerful all day long. If someone said that we were sad, that person would be wrong. We visit people who are sick and try to make them smile. Even if their noses bleed or if they cough up bile. Oh, tra-la-la, fiddle-dee-dee, hope you get well soon. Ho, 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 he, 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 have a heart-shaped balloon. And it goes, uh, oh yeah, we visit people who are ill and try to make them laugh, even when the doctor says he must saw them in half. <laughs> and it continues on like that. That's my favorite part. I know. I also like, we sing to men with measles and to women with the flu, and if you breathe in deadly germs, we'll probably sing to you! <laughs> Sounds like Which a threat. Is... I know. <laughs> <laughs> I love it because it makes me think of um, future happenings to the Baudelaire's that involve the breathing in of uh, deadly things. Oh, foreshadowing Spores. of the Medus medusoid mycelium? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, get excited, guys. So the siblings are trying to figure out whether or not Jacques Snicket was ever a part of this particular VFD because they know that he was a part of a secret organization that was also affiliated with their parents but they don't really know what the VFD stands for or what they do. And so they inquire about it to the volunteers fighting disease, but they are unhelpful. And so the leader tells them that they should look for more information in, the li in a library of records. And then upon arriving at the unfinished hospital called Heimlich Hospital, the children learn from Babs who is the head of HR and an unseen voice over the intercom, that three VFD volunteers are needed in the library of records. Um, <laughs> I love Babs for yeah. the brief moment that she is part of the Baudelaire's lives. At, at, like at first when I read it, I was fairly sure that Babs was going to turn out to be um, a villain, but she's not. She's just kind of a dick. Like, yeah. She's just sort of like another vice principal Nero of just like a generally unpleasant person. But the children go to her office to volunteer to be the people who work in the library of records. And they're a little concerned that she's going to recognize them. But fortunately, she's not in the office. There's just an intercom in the office from which her voice pours forth. And every time the Baudelaire's try to say something, she says, be silent. Yeah, they come in and Babs is talking about the children who are, the Daily Punctilio is calling murderers, and Violet says, we're three children too. And if you're children, then be silent, Babs's voice said rudely. In my opinion, children should be seen and not heard. I'm an adult, so it follows that I should be heard and not seen. <laughs> That's why I work exclusively over the intercom. Love you, Babs. Babs also believes that the most important thing that they do at Heimlich Hospital is paperwork. Um. Absolutely. So the children start working in the library of records um, alongside Hal, who is an extremely elderly man with terrible eyesight, who fortunately doesn't read the Daily Punctilio and is aware that it's garbage, but who does say that he recognizes the children from what he calls the Snicket file. And when we say file, we mean that in the library of records, these kids are filing, I, I don't know, like millions mm -hmm. <laughs> of files that are organized in the most bananas way as possible. What is it that he organizes? It's There's just, like a... it's just vibes. Like, <laughs> it's, you're exactly right. <laughs> so Hal 
tells them that they're not supposed to be reading any of these files. They're not allowed to read any of them, which makes it obviously, one would assume, hard for them to file these. So he's trying to demonstrate to them how you can file a file without reading anything inside it. For instance, he continued, you only have to read a few words to see that these paragraphs are about the weather last week at Damocles Dock, which is on the shores of Lake someplace. So you would ask me to unlock cabinets in ILD for Damocles, or W for weather, or even P for paragraphs. <laughs> so awful. <laughs> and then Violet, I think, is like, wouldn't that make the file hard to find again? And he's like, yeah, probably. <laughs> it's none of my business. And what about it? <laughs> So obviously the siblings are instantly desperate to find this Snicket file. They're hoping that maybe it has valuable information about that. Maybe that could clear their name or anything about their strange and mysterious lives. But the next day when they're at work, Olaf comes over the intercom claiming to be <laughs> Mattathias, <laughs> the new head of HR. So um, Olaf's voice comes over the loudspeaker calling for attention and announcing himself as Mattathias. And he says, Babs has resigned from Heimlich Hospital. And the siblings felt as if they could see the cruel smile Olaf always had on his face when he was telling lies. She decided to pursue a career as a stunt woman and began throwing herself off buildings immediately. <laughs> so dark. I know. It's terrible. It's so awful. It's every once in a while you'll come across something in these books and you're like, wow, I'm surprised that they let that one, that that it made it into the final, the final edit. I know, it's awful. (laughs) Anyway, so we now know where our immediate threat is. And so the Baudelaire's know that they are running out of time and so they trick the nearsighted Hal by replacing his key ring with Violet's hair ribbon and some bent paper clips, which... I'm sorry, but, like, how? I know. Come on, man. I mean, weight alone should be an indicator. Yeah. The texture of a hair ribbon is not the same as a key Oh, it's ring. completely different. You he kind of had it coming. Yeah. I love the Baudelaire's. We'll talk more about this. The intense, like, moral yeah. <laughs> dilemmas they face all the time. And it's always about the most innocuous shit. You know, mm-hmm. they're, like, stealing and tricking someone is terribly cruel yeah and i'm like yeah i guess but again weighing your other options exactly so they use hal's keys to get into the library of records at night and they search for the snicket file the children find a file labeled baudelaire under b and unfortunately every page has been removed except page 13 which says can we get a drum roll please Due to the evidence discussed on page nine, experts now suspect there may, in fact, be one survivor of the fire, but the survivor's whereabouts are unknown. (gasps) Oh, it's so exciting! I know. Truly one of, like, the biggest reveals of this series. Obviously, the Baudelaire's are completely shocked and hopeful and a million other things. And at this moment, Esme Squalor, former guardian and also current girlfriend of Count Olaf, appears wearing stiletto heels. Stiletto here, meaning a small sharp knife (laughs) on the bottom of her shoes, which (laughs) is amazing. And I love that she still almost gets the best of them, even in these fucking shoes. Mm -hmm. 
But she chases the Baudelaire's around the library, knocking down filing cabinets as she goes, which obviously fall like dominoes, and come very close to trapping all three of the siblings. But Klaus and Sunny manage to escape up a chute that Violet recognizes is too small for her and tells them to go on and that they will all meet back together in the unfinished wing of the hospital that night. However, after hours of waiting, it is clear that Violet has been caught. And so the next day, Klaus and Sunny travel through the hospital with the volunteers fighting disease, hoping to find Violet. And Mattathias comes over the intercom announcing that hospital surgeons will be performing a craniectomy on a 14-year-old girl in the operating theater that afternoon. I love the craniectomy. I know. (laughs) When they are in the operating theater, Count Olaf says, many doctors now believe that many medical problems originate in the brain. And so sometimes it's best to remove the head altogether. (laughs) I love the number of legitimate nurses in the (laughs) operating room who are like, (laughs) woohoo! Obviously, this is Violet, and Klaus and Sunny, they duck into a supply closet to come up with a plan to save Violet and try to find her name on a patient list that they got from the Volunteers Fighting Disease. And they realize, with help from the Quagmire's notes, which include a really stupid couplet from Isadora, which I will not deign to read. And to be clear, when I say with help from the Quagmire's notes, I mean, I'm in Duncan's notes. Yeah. I can't get on my Isadora soapbox. <laughs> what is it? Um... America runs on Duncan. <laughs> the, the Baudelaire's run on Duncan. Uh, so they realize that Olaf has been using anagrams up until this point to hide the names, to hide his name and the name of his associates. So, for instance, Al Funkut, the playwright from the first book, is an anagram for Count Olaf, as is Flucatano. I love that we spent. Sarah and I, when we recorded that episode, spent like a solid two, three minutes being like, do you think he's Italian? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we really didn't want to mispronounce it. (laughs) I feel so stupid. I feel like a real Isadora. (laughs) So fortunately for them, this supply closet is stocked with, among other things, alphabet soup. So they quickly drain a few cans, and using the letters, they find they take some of the different names from the patient list and shift them around, and eventually realize that Laura V. Bledioti <laughs> is the name being used for Violet. I love that Olaf makes it so helpful. He makes it so easy for the Baudelaire's to, like, to undo him yeah. and figure these out. Like, why would you have to? I love it because they're like, Oh, Olaf uses anagrams when he wants to hide something. And I'm like, well, not very well. Like, yeah. <laughs> Laura V. Bledioti <laughs> is the name being used for Violet. And uh, with this information, they are able to get some sense of where in the hospital she is. So Klaus and Sonny <laughs> disguise themselves as doctors with coats and masks. Can you imagine being introduced to your doctor and they're like clearly a baby? <laughs> Incredible. And so they're traveling through the hospital, and they come across Esme, who is carrying the knife that will be used to perform Violet's craniectomy. And Esme believes them to be the white-faced women. <laughs> yeah, so they're the members of Count Olaf's troop. She thinks they're yes. She thinks they're exactly. Henchmen. To be clear, the white-faced women are both grown adults, so not, and women not in, and white-faced. Yeah. Yep, uh, three things that 
don't apply to both of those kids. Mm-hmm. And Esme brings them to the hook-handed man and the bald man, who are also fooled. By the way, the hook-handed man and the bald man are more of Olaf's associates, and who are posing as doctors. And they take them to Violet, uh, who is in the operating theater. Violet, at this point, is under anesthesia, so she is unable to be of any assistance or to uh, keep her own head from being removed. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's lots of people in the audience, including, but not limited to, various nurses and the woman from the Daily Punctilio, who is always on the clock. This gal is forever coming up with headlines. Yeah. Klaus and Sunny managed to stall the operation for a little bit by giving <laughs> a very exciting history of the knife. Mm-hmm. And then, in a very exciting moment, they managed to get everyone hyped up about paperwork, which looks like this could be their saving grace once that magic word is spoken. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, they are interrupted by Esme and the two actual white-faced women. And Esme exposes the Baudelaire's, who are, of course, unable to convince anyone around them of their innocence. Hal then appears and accuses the siblings of setting fire to the Library of Records, which they have not done. You can probably guess who did. Yeah. (laughs) Just some context clues. You try real hard. (laughs) And so the siblings are surrounded. Klaus and Sunny escape on Violet's gurney with Violet, and the three siblings flee through the burning hospital. They are chased by the henchperson of indeterminate gender, and the Baudelaire's once again hide in a closet. And Violet invents a bungee cord using rubber bands and imitates Babs's voice over the intercom as a distraction. And after safely jumping down from the window, the Baudelaire's hear Olaf and his henchmen loading up in the car and making plans to find and destroy the Snicket file. Olaf also leaves one of his associates, the hinge person of indeterminate gender, to die in the burning hospital. So, R.I.P. That's pretty awful. Yeah. And then the Baudelaire's realize that they have nowhere to go and that they are wanted for arson and murder in the middle of the hinterlands and that they need to also find the Snicket file. And so they sneak into Olaf's trunk before it's closed and are able to breathe through the bullet holes because they know that wherever Olaf is going, they need to go there too because they need to figure out some answers to all of their questions. Ah, <sighs> poor Baudelaire's. Yeah, it's like both of these books, book eight and book nine, I think have like two of the best cliffhanger endings in the whole series they do yeah book nine's cliffhanger is bananas i can't wait to get to that one me too okay do we want to do favorite excerpts yeah so this is just a funny little lemony snicket aside from the beginning of book eight when the baudelaire's are trying to figure out what to do who they can send a telegram to to try to help them Lemony Snicket says, if you're like most people, you have an assortment of friends and family you you can call upon in times of trouble. For instance, if you woke up in the middle of the night and saw a masked woman trying to crawl through your bedroom window, (laughs) you might call your mother or father to help you push her back out. (laughs) I love that. I love that she just needs to be removed from the window. (laughs) I wonder what happens when the mask someone is pushed back out right it's just so specific i love it one of my other favorite snicket asides comes at the beginning of chapter two when the baudelaire's have just sent a telegram to mr poe and 
Snicket starts off the chapter with, of all the ridiculous expressions people use, and people use a great many ridiculous expressions, one of the most ridiculous is, no news is good news. And then he, you know, gives a little definition, the idea being that if someone hasn't contacted you to tell you something unpleasant, that means that um, things are probably fine. But he says, everything being fine is only one of many, many reasons why someone may not contact you. Perhaps they're tied up. Maybe they're surrounded by fierce weasels. Or perhaps they're wedged tightly between two refrigerators and cannot get themselves out. The expression might as well be changed to, no news is bad news. Except people might not be able to contact you because they've just been crowned king or are participating in a gymnastics tournament. <laughs> I love that those are two of two good things <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that can happen to a person. This is the second time weasels have been um, spoken about in a series of unfortunate events book. Yeah, he's big on them. And I, and I validate that. Mm-hmm. I myself am a... Um, avowed weasel fan <laughs> the rumors are true folks <laughs> do you want to tell us about one of my favorite sunny sayings oh yes you know how sunny because she's a baby likes to speak in a series of unintelligible shrieks and other fun little words that need to be translated by her siblings and so um, she has one particularly challenging mouthful in this book <laughs> i'll try my best to pronounce it correctly she says Pytrisicamolavia del recchio temexity sunny said which was Ooh. something she had said only once before it meant something along the lines of i must admit i don't have the faintest idea of what is going on and the first time the youngest Baudelaire had said it, she had just been brought home from the hospital where she was born, and was looking at her siblings as they leaned over her crib to greet her. This time, she was sitting in the unfinished wing of the hospital where she worked, and was looking at her siblings as they tried to guess what Hal had meant when he mentioned the Snicket fires. Wonderful. <laughs> she says it two more times in this book, at least. I know. It's a great, like, running gag. I love it. So after they've been separated, Klaus and Sunny have been separated from Violet, and the two younger siblings are searching for her in the hospital, they join up with the volunteers fighting disease and go from room to room. I don't know if we've mentioned this, but the volunteers fighting disease exclusively, I want to be clear, like, they're not like candy stripers who also do some fun things on the side. They exclusively sing to people and hand out heart-shaped balloons. There's nothing else they do. They don't do any of the unpleasant work, like shots or giving someone water. Yeah, they won't even, like, hold your hand or have a conversation with you, you know? Like, they're just fully useless. Yep. They remind me of, um, in the way that they just travel around ready to terrorize, they remind me of singing Valentine's in high school. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, I loved singing Valentine's, though. You can't say it wasn't amazing. We didn't get anything done. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. I mean, I don't have anything against singing Valentine's, but... It was true. It was an agonizing experience to sit in front of the class and yeah. have people sing to you. That was that was hard. <laughs> but yes, that is that's about what they do. They bust into rooms uh, where people are laying in casts or bandaged. Excuse me, said the man hoarsely. Could you please call a nurse for me? I was supposed to take some painkillers this morning, but nobody has come to give them to me. And I'd like a glass of water, the woman said in a weak voice. If it's not too much trouble. Sorry, the bearded man replied, pausing for a moment to tune his guitar. We don't have time to do things like that. We have to visit each and every room of the hospital, so we need to move quickly. Besides, another volunteer said, giving the two patients a huge grin, a cheerful attitude is a more effective way of fighting illness than painkillers or a glass of water. So cheer up and enjoy your balloon. 
some of these poor people. A woman with a sore throat. A man in the plague ward. Um, oh, yeah, I love this one. They go to the plague ward to visit this guy who has a cough. And at one point, the Baudelaire's are like, we'd like to bring him a good humidifier, but Violet is probably a more danger than someone with a cough. <laughs> it's like, I don't... Well, in the plague ward... <laughs> I think you're all in quite a bit of danger, actually. You're in the plague ward. Right? I would quickly exit. So the VFD, Volunteers Fighting Disease, I feel like they can kind of be read as like a parallel or an allegory for useless, feel-good, performative activism mm-hmm. that's just done for the benefit of the people who are doing it and not so much for the people who actually need to be helped. The idea that, quote, picturing something can make it so. Yes, that's my other favorite little quip of theirs. Mm-hmm. I get very strong anti-vaxxer vibes from yeah. the volunteers fighting disease. You're right. I love that Lemony Snicket always starts, or so often does his little asides at the start of a chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're almost like a little, like a little break. Yeah, <laughs> in the flow of the narrative, um, and they're really wonderful because you're not always sure where he's going with them, but obviously they all tie back around in the end. I love this one where he talks about an experience that happened to a good friend of mine named Mr. Siren. Mr. Searin was a lepidopterist, a word which usually means a person who studies butterflies. In this case, however, the word lepidopterist means a man who was being pursued by angry government officials. And on the night I am telling you about, they were right on his heels. Mr. Searin looked back to see how close they were, four officers in their bright pink uniforms, with small flashlights in their left hands and large nets in their right, (laughs) and realized that in a moment they would catch up and arrest him and his six favorite butterflies, which were frantically flapping alongside him. And then he says that Mr. Searin doesn't mind much if he was captured. He had been in prison four and a half times. And a half? <laughs> over the course of his long and complicated life. But he cared very much about the butterflies. He realized that these six delicate insects would undoubtedly perish in bug prison, where poisonous spiders, stinging bees, and other criminals would rip them to shreds. <laughs> All of this leads to him swallowing the butterflies and describing the sensation of having butterflies in one's stomach. I love that the butterflies are also fugitives. Yeah. <laughs> what have they done? I want desperately to know. <laughs> and I love the description of the police in their bright pink uniforms with large nets in their hands. Excellent. While also we're on the topic of Mr. Siren, it is a illusion. So Mr. Siren, this lepidopterist, Siren is actually an early pseudonym of Vladimir Nabokov, a famous Russian-American author and noted lepidopterist. So. Ah, wonderful. So we've talked about VFD being kind of a parallel for useless activism. We can obviously see the Daily Punctilio as misinformation, disinformation, fake news, whatever you want to call it. Although it's unclear to me what the... Or whether the Daily Punctilio is malevolent or incompetent, you know? I lean more toward incompetent. Or, you know, they're just, they're, they bait their readers. At one point, she says, like, talking something out calmly. Talking it out calmly is not a good headline. Or, like, what a boring headline. Mm-hmm. I, then I suppose they are malevolent to a degree. But they're not Olaf yeah. brand malevolent. Yeah. They're just very bad at They're useless to, um to a dangerous degree yeah and we can also 
Heimlich Hospital's obsession with paperwork. Like, they won't see <laughs> any patients until, you know, forms have been filled out in quadruplicate. And and they say paperwork is the most important thing we do here at Heimlich Hospital. And they have a giant... <laughs> Their giant library of records full of files of paperwork that they're so proud of, much more proud of than they are of the way they treat their patients. And it just like really reminds me of the U.S. insurance industry. It's something I didn't think about at all when I was a kid reading them. And now when I was reading it, I was like, oh, yeah, this is definitely making fun of the bureaucracy of the health industry. Parts of this book feel depressingly realistic. Also, (laughs) I love that half of the hospital is unfinished because it's true. Never in my life have I seen a finished hospital. Yeah. A finished hospital is like a finished university, you know? Right. Like a finished it's not going to happen. No. And it's only finished for about five minutes, yeah. you know? And then they're like, but wait, but wait, there's more. <laughs> All right. So let's transition now into the plot summary for book nine, The Carnivorous Carnival. Sarah, please. The Carnivorous Oh, yeah. Excuse me. The Carnivorous Carnival takes place or starts up right where the hostile hospital left off with the Baudelaire still hiding in the trunk of Olaf's car, where the Baudelaire's overhear him and the troop discussing their plans. And it sounds like they are headed to meet with a woman named Madame Lulu, who is apparently the person who has been telling Olaf where the Baudelaire's are hidden each time they move, which um, is an impressive feat because (laughs) that has been an ongoing question throughout this series. And also uh, wondering about the location of the Snicket file, which Olaf says is the last piece of evidence that could potentially send the troop to jail. The car arrives at the Caligari Carnival, where Olaf and the troop leave the car and the Baudelaire's are able to escape using Violet's lockpicking skills. And then the siblings try to call Mr. Poe. It doesn't work. And they realize they are entirely on their own. So they eavesdrop on Olaf's troop and overhear Madame Lulu and Madame Lulu speaks with the same accent as Gunther. If you remember Gunther from the Arsatz Elevator book six, please. <laughs> it's uh, We think that's, what, an Eastern European accent? Yeah, I think she's trying, they're trying to imitate like an Eastern European accent. But they just say please after everything. Yeah, and leave out articles. Yeah. Yeah, did you know, I only realized this after coming here, that there are no articles in Russian. Okay, yeah. so yeah, then it's... <laughs> That's where the stereotype of the accent comes yeah. from. Is. <laughs> yeah. So Madame Lulu talks about how the carnival is losing money due to the low number of customers. It was not a good business idea to open a carnival in the middle of the hinterlands. Please. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> it was not a good business idea to open carnival. In yeah, to open carnival middle. in middle of To open carnival in middle of hinterlands. <laughs> Please. Please. Yes, it's also implied that Lulu has had a romantic relationship with Olaf in the past and is jealous of Esme. Again, we come up to the eternal and unanswerable question. (laughs) What is it about Count Olaf that makes all these women so horny? Like, he's described as being unclean, ugly, ill-groomed, stupid. Yeah, I don't know, man. I couldn't tell you. I think uh, maybe it's, I think a lot of it is the actor thing for Esme, but yeah. I, for Madame Lulu, I'm like, come but on. But like, go. who else has Josephine fell hard? Oh, yeah. She gets the hots for him. Uh huh. Anyone else? I think if Nero had had time, he could have developed a romantic interest in Coach Genghis. I agree. I agree. <laughs> I think it was headed there. <laughs> 
So Baudelaire's are now facing this sort of interesting, like, crisis of self where they find them, and we'll talk more about this, but they f- are finding themselves sort of having to to stoop to Olaf's devices to protect themselves, and they decide that they're going to disguise themselves because it seems to inexplicably work for Olaf <laughs> yeah. all the time. So they go back into the trunk and find various old costumes, and they disguise themselves as, quote, freaks, which I guess is the term that we're going to be using in this, because that's the term they use in the book. But but we don't feel good about it. Yeah, it, there's much to unpack there. Yeah. Because one of the things they overheard Lulu talking about was how she currently doesn't have enough people with disabilities for her House of Freaks. So they are hoping to join the carnival, essentially. So what they do is Klaus and Violet realize that they can share one large shirt and pretend to be a two-headed person. I, I'm very interested in the way they talk about themselves as this, quote, two-headed person, because they don't talk about themselves as being, like, um, two conjoined twins. Yeah. But instead as being, like, one of them who has another head. Yeah. They keep talking about themselves as, like, one person. But anyway, the, the two heads are named Beverly and Elliot, and they dress up Sunny in a large false beard so that just her teeth and eyes poke out, and she is able to pose as Chavo the Wolf Baby. Tag yourself, I identify strongly with Chavo the Wolf Baby. <laughs> I love her. <laughs> Me too. Chavo's backstory is gross. Um yeah. Yeah, when they're interviewing, I suppose, for positions in the carnival, they introduce Chavo as the offspring of a hunter, huntress, who fell in love with a handsome wolf. Yeah. It's like, oh no. Oh, noodles. Oh, noodle. Do you realize how many noodles there are in this series? It's just like, so the first book, lots of noodles, the giant lasagna in book five, the noodles uh, that they use to spell out the names. Of course. In book eight. This is a very, like, noodle-centric text. Yeah. <laughs> so Lulu does hire the Baudelaire's after forcing Beverly and Elliot to eat an ear of corn, um, much to their humiliation. As you can imagine, it's difficult for two people to share one ear of corn while using one arm from each person. And she says that people, crowds love sloppy eating and violence. The violence, of course, is brought by Chavo the Wolf Baby. In the caravan where the other, quote, freaks live, the siblings meet Hugo, who is a man with a hunchback, Colette, who is a contortionist, and Kevin, who is (laughs) as ambidextrous as he is whiny. (laughs) Kevin is exhausting. (laughs) He really is. Of the three of them, only Hugo has a, like a noticeable disability mm-hmm. but kevin <laughs> talks non-stop about like how f- quote freakish he is yeah and how sorry he feels for himself and how quote lucky hugo is that the only thing wrong with him is his back <laughs> while poor hideous kevin has equal use of both hands and feet <laughs> i hate kevin yeah kevin is insufferable so the next morning, the hook-handed man who works for Count Olaf wakes up the uh, people in the House of Freaks with news that one of the Baudelaire parents is still alive, which is obviously very exciting. Can we read the passage where he reveals it? Yeah, yeah. Wake up, the hook-handed man said again and pounded on the door. Wake up and hurry up. I'm in a very bad mood and have no time for your nonsense. It's a very busy day at the carnival. 
Madame Lulu and Count Olaf are running errands. I'm in charge of the House of Freaks. The crystal ball revealed that one of those blasted Baudelaire parents is still alive, and the gift caravan is almost out of figurines. Chapter 4. What? asked Hugo, yawning and rubbing his eyes. What did you say? I said the gift caravan is almost out of figurines, said the hook-handed man. (laughs) Obviously, the siblings are very excited. Yes. But then they have to go perform as freaks. Humiliating show for the carnival's awful patrons. After the show, the Baudelaire's try to convince Hugo, Colette, and Kevin that they can find jobs outside of the carnival. Um, But they are, of course, unconvinced because they think the only thing they could possibly do with their life is entertain people in the house of freaks it's very sad where yeah. by the way they are not paid yeah that's right they're like uh... so i'm always interested that they're like we're lucky to find work i'm like but did you yeah it's, this is like an unpaid internship basically <laughs> i'm yeah i mean actually like unpaid employment shows up a lot in these books we have of course lucky smells lumber mill of course and also i think count olaf's troop would count as unpaid Oh, yeah. They say multiple times in this book, especially, yeah. that um, the troop are not paid, and nor will they be after Olaf <laughs> yeah. gets the fortune. And Sunny, of course, is not paid for her work as the administrative assistant to That's Vice Principal right. Nero. Wow. I wonder if Daniel Handler ever had an unpaid internship. <laughs> yeah. He's just working through there's something. Also, there's also a sweet little moment. You get to watch Sunny's personality develop throughout the books as she, you know, grows up and gets some more skills. And in this book, she reveals the early stages of her cooking talents by adding cinnamon to hot chocolate, which is really cute. So that evening, Olaf arrives back at the carnival with a trailer carrying a pack of lions, hungry, angry lions, who are a gift for Lulu. And he announces that due to uh, flagging attendance at the carnival, Uh, A lion pit will be dug, and one of the, quote, freaks will be thrown in in hopes of drawing a larger audience. For this book, the focus is very much on, like, who the the first person from the House of Freaks will be who's thrown in. But what Olaf says is that, like, every show they're going to do this. Yeah. And I'm like, you have tops five employees at this time in this particular, like, demographic. You're right. And of course, the draw here will be a combination of both sloppy eating and violence. Which the crowd will love. So Lulu says that the lions are a reward for her fortune telling. And when Olaf recounts the story, he lets slip that the surviving Baudelaire parent is supposedly in the Mortmain Mountains. And we can see Esme starting to get pretty peeved about the presence that Lulu is receiving. She's like, you bought Lulu these man-eating lions. What did you get for me? And he's like, you can share the whip? It's like, ugh, what a guy. What a stand-up dude. <laughs> does the does the giant noodle make it into... Oh, you're right. We haven't talked about the giant noodle yet. Giant noodle appears at their first performance yes. in the freak show. Yeah, so I thought of it because you mentioned the whip. Yes, you're right. Would you like me to read it? Yes. So um, on the morning that they are woken up by the hook-handed man to perform in their first ever freak show, the hook-handed man says, get inside and put on a good show, he ordered, gesturing to a flap in the tent that served as an entrance. Madame Lulu says that if you don't give the audience what they want, I'm allowed to use this tagliatelle grande. What's a tagliatelle grande, Colette asks. Tagliatelle is a type of Italian noodle, the hook-handed man explained, coiling the long and damp object. (laughs) And grande means big in Italian. 
This is a big noodle that a carnival worker cooked up for me this morning. Olaf's comrade waved the big noodle over his head, and the Baudelaire's and their co-workers heard a limp swishing sound as it moved slowly through the air, as if a large earthworm were crawling nearby. If you don't do what I say, the hook-handed man continued, I get to hit you with the Talia Tele Grande, which I've heard is an unpleasant and somewhat sticky experience. <laughs> so weird. <laughs> right? Oh, but the first time it's mentioned is when they first see him, and the hook-handed man is described as holding something long and damp in one of his hooks. <laughs> like, it really is just so silly. Yeah, right? Exactly. <sighs> yeah. But boy, is it fun. Tell you, tell you, Grande. Any relation to it. Ariana? Oh, man. <laughs> Cry. <laughs> Oh man, Sarah, thank you so much for reminding me. It, yeah. We would have been remiss to yes. leave out the Talia Telegrande. <laughs> so, from what I gather, everyone escapes their first day on the job without being hit by the wet, sticky noodle. <laughs> that night, the Bodlers decide to sneak into Lulu's tent to look for clues, and uh, they discover another painting of the eye, the symbol that has followed them around from place to place. And realize that it's not just a painting, it's, it's an insignia. It's like a, a symbol, presumably, for VFD. And as they look around the tent, they realize that Lulu uses various like mechanical tricks and bells and whistles, smoke and mirrors, to make her fortune telling seem authentic with what appear to be like flashes of lightning and strange humming noises. So obviously Lulu is a fraud. And they consider the possibility that, that this means that what she told Olaf about one of their parents being alive could also potentially be fictitious. This is probably not something she knows for sure. And they find an archival library hidden under the tablecloth. So just like a, a gigantic collection of newspapers and articles and flyers, etc. That are how Lulu has been giving Olaf the information he needs to find the Baudelaire's each time. So there's like a list of students from Proofrock Prep. Uh, article about village of foul devotees taking in three orphans. This is how Lulu has been feeding Olaf the information. So then the Baudelaire's accidentally break Lulu's crystal ball and are discovered when Lulu hears them. And they are no longer intimidated by her, so they tell her that they know that she's a fraud. And then she breaks down and reveals herself to be a woman named Olivia, who says she just wants to give people what they want. And so she gives Olaf the answers he wants to hear, but she's done the same thing for Jacques Snicket and other members of VFD. And then the Baudelaire's remove their disguises as well. Olivia immediately recognizes them by their proper names, not the made-up names from the Daily Punctilio, and is surprised to see their disguises and shows them that they came from the, quote, VFD disguise kit which she has a duplicate of and which reveals that both she and Olaf are or were at some point members of VFD. And of course the Baudelaire's are like, what is VFD? What does it stand for? And she's like, she's not like, I'm not going to tell you, but she doesn't tell them. It's so annoying. I just, oh, I'm furious. She's like, we don't have time for that or something. Yeah. Like It'll all be explained. So she tells them about the schism in the organization, which was a fight between the members that presumably divided their cause or their causes. When they ask whether VFD or the people in VFD are good or bad, she tells them that that's a complicated question to answer and that some of the people were good people who have done bad things and maybe vice versa. 
And Olivia at this point is very ashamed of her behavior because at at one point she described herself as a noble person. And so Olivia wonders if she can become a noble person again. The Baudelaire's tell her that she can. She and the Baudelaire's make a plan to travel together to the Mortmain Mountains to find the VFD headquarters and to see if one of the Baudelaire parents is still alive, which Olivia doesn't know for sure. And Violet suggests inventing a vehicle made from the abandoned roller coaster cars and a fan belt. And so the Baudelaire's sneak out of the tent as Olaf arrives for his reading. And Olivia promises that she will not tell Olaf who they really are, but the Baudelaire's leave feeling a little uncertain about whether or not she's going to keep that promise because her moral compass has been um, questionable so far. Yeah, and whether she's just telling them that because she's giving them, she's telling them what they want to hear. Right. Important point about the fan belt, the fan belt is not currently in their possession. Olivia has it in her tent and will need to give it to them in the morning in order for them to uh, put the cars in motion. Yes. Why don't they just steal the keys to Count Olaf's car? Oh my god, you're right. <laughs> oh. That's a lot easier than turning an abandoned roller coaster into a uh. vehicle. Probably for the same reason they didn't just stab the doctors when they had the henchmen, when they had the big knife. Yeah. Everything is a huge moral quandary for these kids. Personally, and we'll, if we ever talk about the boxcar kids, I'll get on this soapbox. <laughs> but I'm a big believer in doing what needs to be done. Like, for the love of God. <laughs> I mean, Violet, they don't even need the keys. Violet could hotwire. Oh, yeah. For sure. Yeah. Oh, I'm real peeved. <laughs> I, sometimes I worry that the Baudelaire's are so smart they're stupid. Yeah. <laughs> like, Violet immediately jumps to, like, how could I turn this abandoned roller coaster into an escape plan? It's like, <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> so later that night, Esme Squalor, who you, of course, remember is Olaf's girlfriend, arrives at the so-called Freaks caravan um, in an outfit that says, I love freaks, and has components of their disabilities. So like a sack to mimic Hugo's back, a hat with a face drawn on it to represent a second head on this outfit. What? Yeah, really what? <laughs> and she, she calls them all her friends and offers really like the first kindness that Colette, Kevin, and Hugo have seen in ages. And they're just overcome. They view her as like angelic because she's a, a quote normal person deigning to speak to them and she offers them positions in olaf's troop provided that whoever is chosen to be fed to the lions the next day throws olivia in instead esme at this point is extremely jealous of olivia and unfortunately hugo colette and kevin are so so starved for affection that they immediately accept but the baudelaire's of course are obviously horrified it's also interesting because like not to just be poking plot holes in here, like it's Swiss cheese, but they, why don't they warn Madame Lulu that someone's going to try oh, to throw yeah. her into the pit? Right? They spend all ah. night building, or like all morning or whatever, like building this car. Could someone not go knock on her door and be like, hey, BT dubs. Heads up. <laughs> watch your step. Yeah, you're right, Sarah. Getting real... Swiss cheese vibes. Been <laughs> a little peeved, if I do say so myself. Anyway. Um, so the next morning, the siblings prepare the coaster cars while a crowd of rude, bloodthirsty carnival goers arrive. 
And among them is the Daily Punctilio reporter who wrote the story about the Baudelaire's being murderers. And Beverly and Elliot, a.k.a. Violet and Klaus, are chosen to be fed to the lions. And so they try to stall the situation by riling up the crowd using mob psychology. And the crowd, who want Lulu to push Beverly and Elliot into the pit, force her out onto the board along with the orphans. And desperate to save herself, Lulu takes the fan belt from the children and promises the crowd that she'll push them in to give the people what they want. It's very depressing. Yeah. It's giving Josephine (laughs) promising to flee the country if (laughs) Olaf only doesn't kill her and instead kills the kids. I love it when the Baudelaire's use mob psychology. Very exciting and zesty. Let me say it writes mobs extraordinarily well. I know. I agree. And we can talk more about the crowd of people and the various things they say, do, and look like when we talk about favorite excerpts. But I love any scene where there are like just random side characters introduced. Mm-hmm. Same. So getting frustrated with the fact that no one has been pushed into the lion pit, Olaf promises a quote special reward or something like that for whoever does the actual pushing so colette kevin and hugo are eager to prove themselves to olaf by doing the pushing some of the other members of the troop are eager to push (laughs) to do the pushing so as to keep the quote freaks out of the troop and then everyone from the crowd just really wants to see someone get eaten by lions so everyone starts moving at once so the crowd all rush and shove forward And in the resulting chaos, both the bald man and Lulu fall into the pit and are immediately devoured. Yikes. This is another, like, one of the moments in the book where you're like, these books are just so gory. But then the siblings heard another sound in the pit, a horrible crunching and ripping sound that was far worse than the roaring of the beasts. That's awful. (laughs) And they could, it says that, um... Even in these positions, however, the children could hear the terrible, terrible sounds from the pit. Even over the laughter and cheers of the carnival visitors as they crowded together at the edge of the pit to see what was happening. It is it is awful. Uh, so obviously in the mayhem and the chaos, the fan belt is lost along with their, <laughs> along with their super over-the-top plan to <laughs> escape on roller coaster cars. Yes. So the Baudelaire's are horrified. They escape to Madame Lulu's tent and find a map of the Mortmain Mountains. The Baudelaire's determine that a coffee stain um, on a place marking the Valley of Four Drafts on the map might indicate the BFD headquarters. It's like a secret code to mark a secret headquarters. And then Olaf and Esme arrive and they have set fire to the carnival as they enjoy doing. <laughs> as they are wont to do it's kind of their signature so they invite they the still disguised Baudelaire's to join their troop and Olaf sees the map and confirms that the coffee spot is a coated stain and he decides that he needs to bring his troop to the valley of four drafts and so with no other options and the carnival burning down around them the siblings decide to join Olaf on the trip and Olaf takes Chavo aka Sunny to ride with him and Esme in the car, telling them that Beverly and Elliot will be dragged behind in the caravan. As the car and the caravan wind through the mountains, Olaf calls to 
Klaus and Violet over a walkie-talkie and reveals that Olivia gave them up to Olaf and told Olaf who they really are. So he's got Sunny up front with him in the car, and so he has no use for Violet and Klaus because he only needs one Baudelaire to steal the fortune. And so the newly recruited troop members, Hugo, Colette, and Kevin, cut the rope connecting the caravan to Count Olaf's car, therefore sending the caravan careening toward a cliff and ending the book on a very literal cliffhanger. Exciting. Yeah, it's one of the most intense, I think it's the best, like, and most intense, terrifying ending in the it's entire It's horrifying. Series. Yeah. I can't remember. I remember either reading the end of this book or the beginning of book 10, like, on the school bus. And I remember the moment that I had to, like, close it and put it down and put it in my backpack and being like, oh, god damn it. <laughs> Man, I was so disappointed in Hugo, Kevin, and Colette. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> they really... <laughs> They did a full 180. Also, Madam Lulu giving them up is such a bummer. It's so disappointing. All right, so that's not my favorite part of the book. Do we want to share some parts we do actually like? <laughs> yeah, so just a little anecdote. I love that Esme, even though she's on the run, is still very concerned about what is in and what is out. And last time we spent time with Esme, aqueous martinis and then parsley soda were in. Um, and now it appears that buttermilk is the most in beverage. And so they just drink Incredible. cartons of buttermilk in this book, which is <laughs> so gross. I love it. I love it. So I was saying how much I love um, side characters in Snicket's universe. They are so malicious and useless and strange and there's an ongoing theme in this book that obviously plays off of the what's that german word for enjoying other people's misery schadenfreude schadenfreude yeah yeah that the audience members get from watching the people in the house of freaks suffer <laughs> and there's a man in the audience who has a pimpled chin when the Baudelaires go to their first show, or, or I guess perform in their first show, when they come out on stage, the, they see the audience and the audience sees them. And one man says, look at all those freaks, giggled one member of the audience, a middle-aged man with several large pimples on his chin. There's a man with hooks instead of hands. I'm not one of the freaks, the hook-handed man growled. I work here at the carnival. Oh, I'm sorry, the man said. But if you don't mind me saying so, if you purchased a pair of realistic hands, no one would make that mistake. It's not polite to comment on other people's appearances, the hook-handed man said sternly. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, do they also do that to the bald man? <laughs> yeah. At one point, the man with pimples, I think, is called a freak by someone in the audience, and he's like, I have a skin condition. Yeah. Teaching us all a so helpful good. lesson about why we just shouldn't make fun of the way people look in general. Yep. If you have, just, I would, I would just recommend not even saying anything, unless it starts with, I love your. Yes. Oh, wait, okay, I, we have to read my favorite part. This is another one of Snicket's aside, and this is almost immediately after Olaf arrives with his trailer that is revealed to be full of lions. And Snicket tells us that he must interrupt the story he is writing to tell us another story in order to make an important point. The second story, he says, is fictional, a word which here means somebody made it up one day, as opposed to the story of the Baudelaire orphans, which somebody merely wrote down, usually at night. It's called The Story of Queen Debbie and Her Boyfriend Tony, and it goes something like this. And then there's 
about three pages in um, ye old text font <laughs> titled The Story of Queen Debbie and Her Boyfriend Tony. Um, and Queen Debbie is the queen of a, it's repeated many times, a fictional land where there were fierce and fictional lions who guarded the palace against fictional enemies. And Queen Debbie had a boyfriend named Tony who lived in a neighboring fictional kingdom. And due to the distance, Debbie and Tony couldn't see each other that often, but would occasionally meet up for dinner or a movie or other fictional things. And one day Tony's birthday comes around and Queen Debbie, who couldn't attend the party, sends a card and a minor bird. And, of course, the polite thing to do if one receives a gift is to write a thank you note. But Tony, who is not a particularly polite person, calls Debbie and complains. Debbie, this is Tony, Tony says. I got the birthday present you sent me, and I don't like it at all. I'm sorry to hear that, Queen Debbie said, plucking a lollipop off a nearby tree. I picked out the minor bird especially for you. What sort of present would you prefer? I think you should give me a bunch of diamonds, said Tony, who was as greedy as he was fictional. And <laughs> Queen Debbie is wondering why he would possibly want diamonds more than a minor bird and talks about how impractical it is to send diamonds in the post as they might be stolen and then he wouldn't have any present at all. And I want diamonds, whined Tony, who was really becoming quite tiresome. I know what I'll do, Queen Debbie said with a faint smile. I'll feed my diamonds to the royal lions and then send the lions to your kingdom. No one would dare attack a bunch of fierce lions, so the diamonds are sure to arrive safely. Hurry up, Tony said. It's supposed to be my special day. So Queen <laughs> Debbie hurries up and feeds the palace lions the diamonds, wrapping them in tuna fish and sends them on their way. Tony waited impatiently outside his house for the rest of the day, eating all the ice cream cake and teasing his minor bird. And finally, just about sunset, he saw the lions approaching on the horizon and ran over to collect his present. Give me those diamonds, you stupid lions, Tony cried, and there is no need to tell you the rest of the story, which has a rather obvious moral, never look a gift lion in the mouth. And it just <laughs> cuts off there. I love Queen Debbie. I would love to know more about how she and Tony became an item. <laughs> Same. Oh, man. He has another a really fun one at the start of Chapter 5. Sarah, do you want to share that one? Yeah. At the start of Chapter 5... Lemony Snicket describes the phenomenon of deja vu, which you might be familiar with from a very good Olivia Rodrigo song, but <laughs> if you're not, Lemony Snicket gives a wonderful explanation of it. And then, if I'm not mistaken, the next page then is the exact same page with the exact same print with the exact same description of deja vu. So And the exact same illustration. And it says chapter five at the top again. It's awesome. He also talks a little bit about French expressions, like ennui, and he also says la petite mort. Yeah. Is occasionally <laughs> meant to <laughs> describe the feeling that part of you has died, but is more commonly understood <laughs> to reference um, orgasm. <laughs> yeah, that's another one where I'm like, wow, the, I can't believe the editor. I guess by the time they got to book nine, maybe the editors were letting him have a little... Right? But I came to leash. an abrupt stop. Because obviously I didn't know that in third grade. No. I'm no. glad I didn't start, like, incorporating that into my vocabulary. Oh, my God. Ah, <laughs> uh, that killed me. And I Googled it just to make sure that I wasn't, like, reaching. And no, no, it's a thing. At the just... very end of the Wikipedia page, it's like, sometimes it can occasionally be used in a non-sexual reference. And I was like, no, not good enough. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy so 
There are a buttload of illusions. <laughs> is the technical term. Understood. These books are lousy with illusions. <laughs> I'm sorry. That is my favorite, favorite expression to mean a lot. Yeah, so there's a ton of illusions. We see in the hostile hospital, Lemony Snicket tells us, an associate of mine named William Congreve once wrote a very sad play that begins with the line, music has charms to soothe the savage breast. And William Congreve was a real person, unlike some of the fictional associates that Snicket mentioned. So he was an English poet and playwright who wrote during the Restoration period, which was the late 1600s and early 1700s. So I think it's funny that <laughs> Lemony Snicket is calling this man who wrote this play in 1697 an associate. It really does just, again, bring into question the time. What is going Jeremy on? Jeremy, bear me, baby. <laughs> oh, man. Then, of course, there's Emma Bovary, a patient in the hospital uh, with food poisoning. It refers to the character of the same name in Gustave Flaubert's novel, Madame Bovary. And there's also Jonah Mapple, who suffers from seasickness and who is named after Father Mapple, a character in uh, Moby Dick by Herman Melville, who is a preacher known for uh, sermonizing on the biblical tale of Jonah trapped in a whale. I like the Dalloway one, too. Yeah, tell us about that one. Clarissa Dalloway is an allusion to a character of the same name in Virginia Woolf's novel, Mrs. Dalloway, which is a book that I have read out of this list. Snicket's character, he writes, suffers from no visible ailment, but instead stares sadly out the window, which could refer to both Woolf's struggles with depression and her essay, A Room of One's Own. Again, we have all of Got these me. like very clever little allusions that you're just like are not, none of the children are going to get. No, they're just not for kids. No, they're not. <laughs> Uh, we also have a patient named Cynthia Vane who has a toothache and is probably named after a character in Nabokov's short story, The Vane Sisters. So two patients also share names with actual authors, Haruki Murakami, a Japanese writer and translator, and Mikhail Bulgakov, a Russian novelist and playwright, are apparently at this hospital. God help them. <laughs> And the Heimlich Hospital is an obvious reference to Henry Heimlich, uh, American physician, best known for, you guessed it, the Heimlich Maneuver. Um, also oh, one man. of my favorite oh. illusions. Yeah, this is one of my favorites, too. Yeah, in an illustration, one of the volunteers fighting disease plays a guitar that has the inscription on it, this volunteer fights disease, which is, of course, an allusion to Woody Guthrie, an American singer-songwriter and folk musician who inscribed, this machine kills fascists on his guitar. I love that. <laughs> Incredible. There's also allusions in, of course, the Carnivorous Carnival. The name Colette is probably a reference to the French writer Colette, just given how inclined Snicket is to use literary names. Hugo and his hunchback condition are an allusion to Victor Hugo and his novel The Hunchback of uh, Notre Dame. I love that, like, Kevin is just here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I have no illusions that Kevin's name is an illusion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Unless maybe Home Alone. I don't know. <laughs> Elliot and Beverly are the aliases that Violet and Klaus use when they are disguised as a two-headed person. And those are the names of twin brothers in the David Cronenberg film Dead Ringers, which I have not seen, but I did read that this is an illusion. So <laughs> yeah. now I'm reading it to you guys. Hope it's right. <laughs> <laughs> Caligari Carnival is also a nod to the 1920 German expressionist film, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. That one I did know. 
Yeah. I have heard of that movie. I have as well. I've not seen it, though. And I don't intend to. <laughs> yeah. Um, Plath Pass on the map of the Mortmain Mountains is most likely a reference to American poet Sylvia Plath. <laughs> and Sarah found something great in the first illustration. Yeah. So it's not really an illusion, but it is funny. Uh, the first illustration in the book shows Olaf's car and its license plate, which is I-H-8-O-R-F-N-S or I hate orphans. <laughs> Oh man! Well, this could that could bring us nicely to trope alert. That's true. What's yeah. the deal with orphan protagonists? For any of you guys who are starting to hate orphans. <laughs> so I wanted to answer this question that has been gnawing at me for years, which is why are so many famous fictional characters in children's stories parentless? Yeah, if they're not orphans, they're mice. That's, yeah. that's facts <laughs> and maybe they're both yeah <laughs> not to be confused with the plot of the Stuart little movie that's true in which he is both an orphan and a mouse not the case in the book right yeah so we've got of course harry potter is one of the most famous orphans of all time anne of green gables tom sawyer and the secret garden a little princess the boxcar children all of those books also have orphan protagonists Oliver Twist, which isn't really a children's book, but is kind of like a canonical orphan-based text. Yeah. So it yeah. has to And has on. definitely been adapted for children right. in various books. Yeah. Uh, we also, of course, have the Orphan Annie. I couldn't forget Samantha Love that that's Parkington. that's like her whole name. Yeah. Of course. The Orphan Annie. Yep. And then, um, yeah, of course, Samantha Parkington from American Girl fame. And then we've got lots of fairy tales, too, like Cinderella. And then other books, Heidi, Pollyanna, The BFG by Roald Dahl, which is one of my favorites as a child. Mm -hmm. um, the Jungle Book. A classic. There's more, but you get the gist. Yeah. A brief, just got to say it, hate the boxcar kids. Hate them so much. I didn't realize they were orphans. Are they okay? Yeah. I know. There's like five of them. Well, I don't know, Sarah. Beyond being completely insufferable, I guess you could say they're okay. <laughs> I hate them. They're too plucky. They suck. Literature in general is lousy with orphans. It's true. So this naturally led me to ask, what's the deal? Why are orphans so intriguing? And there has been some writing about this. One article that I found written by Liz Moore in 2016, which was published on LitHub, titled, Why do we write about orphans so much? which is my exact question. So thank you, Liz. Yeah, thanks, Liz. She says that there is, quote, a practical or functional component to writing about orphans. The orphan character, especially one who is an orphan before the novel begins, comes with a built-in problem, which leads to built-in conflict, which makes sense. You know, the Baudelaire's have a major built-in conflict, which is that they have no one to protect them from the horrors yep. of the world. And several smaller spiraling conflicts. Yes, <laughs> Branching off of the first. <laughs> and then it also, of course, serves a practical function, too. If you want to have, if you want to write child characters who are unencumbered, who are able to do dangerous things without people stopping them or worrying about them, you know, you should not have an adult who cares about them. Good point. She also wrote... One thing that I was intrigued about that I kind of connected to in Lismore's article was how 
she felt like this focus on in children's literature and in, in movies too. All she doesn't really talk about movies. This focus on orphans like influenced her own thinking about her family and the possibility of being orphaned. She says that she worried a lot about her parents dying and that felt like a very realistic fear to have, which I could really relate to. Uh, that was also yeah. something I would think about a lot as a kid was like... Right? That one weighed heavy on me. I was convinced that my parents were always seconds away from death. Yeah. She says, I spent a long time when I was younger worrying about the moment when I'd have to stand on my own to conquer my problems. The fear at the front of my brain was my parents' death, but I wonder if underlying this fear was anticipation of a different, less tragic fate. I was simply anticipating adulthood. And is this what all of us innately fear? The state of being in charge of our destinies, the only ones responsible for our own actions and decisions. Wow, that is an excellent point. Yeah. Wow, I agree. Mm -hmm. We also have an excerpt from a piece called From Folktales to Fiction, Orphan Characters in Children's Literature by Melanie A. Kimball, published in Library Trends in 1999. And she writes, For this study, I examined 50 folktales from different cultures to find similarities, differences, and patterns which contributed to the evolution of the literary orphan hero and heroine. She says, orphan characters in folktales and literature symbolize our isolation from one another and from society. They do not belong to even the most basic of groups, the family unit, and in some cultures, this is enough to cut them off from society at large. Orphans are a reminder that the possibility of utter undesired solitude exists for any human being. Ooh. Yeah, I really like that point that, and this is something that a few people have made on the topic of orphans is like that when we have these tropes in literature that are like very common a lot of times they're like representing some sort of innate or like universal or primal fear and mm -hmm. for a lot of us that is of course the fear of being alone of being outcast from society and not also belonging not belonging right being and having to make decisions for yourself she says also, orphans are at once pitiable and noble. They are a manifestation of loneliness, but they also represent the possibility for humans to reinvent themselves. You get that found family trope. Mm -hmm. Get some of that in there. Not that the orphans in this particular series ever do. <laughs> no, they sure don't. I mean, I guess with the quagmires a bit. A bit, before they vanish forever and are not missed by me. <laughs> One of the interesting things, too, that she talks about Melanie Kimball talks about in this article. So she examined folktales from different cultures, and she found that 29 of the stories contain male orphan characters, 17 have female orphans, and four have at least one of each. And this breakdown is significant in the way that the orphans overcome obstacles in the stories. So in seven of the stories, the orphan uses wits to overcome obstacles, and none of the orphans in these stories are female. And the female orphans tend to overcome obstacles by their virtuous behavior rather than their cleverness. And also female characters are rewarded by marriage more frequently than by any other means. Which Wow, that's a really good point. And yeah. I'm realizing like when I think back to that list, a lot of like the success stories for the male characters have to do with like becoming independent, but the the girls are given uh, like are either like reunited like in addition to marriage are either like in the case of a little princess reunited with family or um adopted you know that's pollyanna that's um annie the secret garden that's annie 100 percent uh anne of green gables yeah that's a really good point 
And in that way, I think it's interesting the way that the series of unfortunate events is like consciously, I feel like going against those tropes because we have, they're always using their wits to get them out of problems, but they also do use their virtues. You know, they're kind and generous and that helps too. But other than their skills, the Baudelaire's are all described as being like very similar in terms of behavior and moral compasses. Mm -hmm. We never get the impression that any of them are sweeter (laughs) than another. Yeah, and and that's interesting because so much of, like she talks about in this article, so much of orphans, especially female orphans in literature, especially from the 19th century, when female orphans were extremely popular in children's literature. Usually by the end of the story, the orphan has transformed the lives of those around them by the force of their Mm -hmm. spunky but sweet natures. And their overwhelming gratitude for anything they are given, and optimism. Again, Pollyanna, Annie, Anne of Green Gables. The only one who's kind of a bitch is Mary in the Secret Garden. Go off, queen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. When you were a kid, Terry, did you ever, like, play games that involved being an orphan? Absolutely, yes. Yeah. But yeah, kids love pretending to be orphans. It's true. I think it has a lot to do, I think, with fairy tales and like Disney more than a lot of other things. Yeah. Yeah. But it's true that in most of my orphan games, I was not a solo orphan. It's a big theme is like, I think in children's games is like orphan siblings. Yes. (laughs) They love to like have sisters, you know, in play. That's a big thing for girls' imaginative play. Yeah. That part is like maybe that some degree of avoidance from the truly not belonging. I think, oh, I think that kind of play encompasses the idea of the freedom of choice, but the inclusion of siblings gives you this sort of like mental safety net mm-hmm. f- from that feeling of isolation. Uh, yeah, I mean, I used to pretend to be orphans a lot with my sister and uh, my cousins. We would play various games where we didn't have parents and I guess it was I mean it kind of gets back to what we were talking about with like built-in conflict you know like all of the things that we would do when we played those games we wouldn't have done if there were parents in the game because it was like oh we have to like cook dinner over the fire yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) like if we had parents our parents would cook dinner for us it was a way to like play at adulthood I think yeah without giving up childhood well, while we're on the subject of kids and what they enjoy, shall we move on to <laughs> a word from us kids? I would love nothing more. These reviews come to us from uh, Dogo Books, which is a website with reviews by kids for kids. And the first ones we are going to give you are for the hostile hospital. This first one is from, uh, I think, Zahi, which says, awesome, amazing, unspeakable. Nice. I like it. Yeah. Unspeakable. I've never heard unspeakable. Well, not never. I don't often hear unspeakable. Uh, in, a in a positive. Yeah. yeah. It's not really a complimentary word, but, but I, I, appreci- but I like the creativity here. Yeah. I like the enthusiasm. This in general was an extremely popular book on Dogo. Everyone loved I'm it. I'm so glad to hear it. Yeah. Bookfan2008, who I believe we've heard from before on another episode said i stayed up till midnight reading this so good five stars and there was a lot of reviews that talked about staying up past one's bedtime which i think lemony snake would Aww. approve of one hundo p absolutely <laughs> cook it to noma <laughs> am i reading this wrong in a way that's stupid no i think i don't think so. i don't know yeah 
Kagetonoma says, I love this book because Klaus will perform surgery. Five stars. <laughs> I don't know that he will. Yeah, he, he actually... Well, I'm... you know what? I just realized maybe Kugitsunoma did only looked at the cover illustration. Oh no, not another one. <laughs> because in it we have Klaus with a big knife at an operating table. I remember being really freaked out by the cover the first time I saw it because it felt to me like Klaus had like turned. Yeah. <laughs> that was very much the impression I got. It is scary. Because he is wielding that knife. <laughs> Spoiler alert, Klaus does not perform surgery. No. Uh, next up, we hear from Cuddles13, who tells us, Klaus and Sunny were pretty brave. Seriously, they look nothing like the white-faced ladies, though. Also, read it twice and the whole series. Five stars. I agree, Robert. Cuddles13. Yeah, that was a big sticking point for me, too. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm struggling with the, the suspension of disbelief yeah. with this particular section. I can believe in a king of Arizona. <laughs> Yeah, but I'm having a hard time with this one. Cupcake says, just finished reading it. Spoiler alert. It was so surprising how Sonny and Klaus passed off as doctors and were supposed to cut off Violet's head. This book was so suspenseful. I could not put it down for a second. Yeah, that's thank you for the spoiler alert, Cupcake. It's <laughs> good. And then, of course, we have a few reviews from the Carnivorous Carnival. Cuddles 13 is back. She says, uh, we missed you, queen. <laughs> Cuddles tells us, good book. Olivia had it coming. Five stars. Honestly, I'm on her side. Me too. Cuddles, she's right and she should say it. <sighs> head, he a dream or head ream. <laughs> head ream. Which I do not like. <laughs> head ream 100. <laughs> Uh, writes, I read all the books in the series, but I never got to read this one because it was already borrowed by someone at the public library. Is that face? Well, then maybe don't review it, Headream 100. <laughs> yeah. What does this serve? The last one is written by Anum, who says, as you can tell by the cover, this book has lions. Roar! <laughs> that was so good. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I love the Dogo books, kids. Me too. Man. All right. Last thing to talk about briefly is just the book was better. Hit so it. there was four episodes in the series of Unfortunate Events Netflix series that featured the Hostel Hospital and the Carnivorous Carnival. So two episodes per book. And I just finished watching them and they are good. <laughs> okay <laughs> that's my hot take piping <laughs> to elaborate so in particular the carnivorous carnival is one of the first episodes that really takes some plot liberties and um, attempts to like fill in some of the missing information that uh, in order to i think like make the vfd plot line a little bit more coherent so the biggest difference is that Madame Lulu is basically a different character. Like in the TV series, Madame Lulu is Olivia, who has been in some of the previous episodes, who is a school librarian and lover of Jacques Snicket and associate of 
uh, VFD. And so she is a good and person. All around good person. Yes. So she's a good person. And she tells us that she's in disguise as Madame Lulu and that the Madame Lulu position is kind of like a rotating position that different volunteers are in. And she just recently got to the position. And so she is a good person trying her best. She's trying to look out for the Baudelaire's. And so it does make it more sad when she gets killed because you're like, oh crap, here was someone who was going to help them. She's part of VFD. She has answers. She's going to take them to the Mormaine Mountains. And she's also a good person. And she'd been around for a few episodes at that point. Like, yeah. You knew her a little bit as a character. So that is one of like the really big differences. And I think it's effective for the purposes of this show, you know, to like have that character as a through line and to make the VFD plot line more coherent. I do kind of miss, though, I, I appreciate Madame Lulu being there as like this very morally ambiguous character who ends up disappointing you. Um, because mm-hmm. something about that is like, really really scary (laughs) yeah it's a running theme with these books but i don't get tired of it because it is deeply tragic it's much it's much more tragic in a way than an actual good person dying you know i mean there's so many there's so many parts to how sad her downfall is you know right the potential she had what she lost and also like we've talked about before the series, the television series, has a has VFD adults as like pretty important characters throughout the episodes, and it does make the situation feel, I think, less dire and less scary because there are people who are looking out for these kids. They're not doing a very good job, but they're trying. <laughs> and yep. you don't get that sense of like complete solitude and isolation that you get from the books. So, is it time to rate? I think it is time to rate. All right. Uh, We are first going to rate The Hostile Hospital for you. We will be rating this book out of 10 heart-shaped balloons. I love this book. I am going to give it 9 out of 10 heart-shaped balloons. Very good. I agree. I think that The Hostile Hospital is also 9 out of 10 heart-shaped balloons for me. Big fan. Love it. So we'll be rating the Carnivorous Carnival out of 10 Talia Grandes or Giant Noodles. I really love this book. I'm going to give the Carnivorous Carnival 10 out of 10 Talia Grandes. Wow, Terry. Get out of mm-hmm. my brain. I am also going to give the Carnivorous Carnival 10 Talia Grandes. It's one of my favorites. I've always loved the setting of like the creepy, mm-hmm. broken down carnival. As a kid, I just found it really unsettling in the best way yep and it's really funny it is it's got so many of the great little i think it's on par with the fifth book in terms of like weird little asides of Mm -hmm. just like what the hell is going on (laughs) exactly exactly big fan big fan so you all can follow us on instagram and twitter at reading underscore recess you can email us at reading during recess pod at gmail.com And please like, subscribe, review. It helps other people find us. And we also enjoy hearing from you guys. And if you have thoughts on future books that you would like us to cover, please let us know. And to all you volunteers fighting disease out there, stay reading.